Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. We're doing a special episode today that is looking at an excellent new documentary on Unheard from our contributor, James Bloodworth. And before we speak to James, we're just going to hear a wee clip from that documentary. It's called How Dead End Jobs Killed Small Town Pride. How do you feel like the town has changed since the pit closed? The town's devastated. The town has never, ever recovered. If you have a reasonably well-paid job, you're travelling out the town. There's still people employed there and got good jobs, but the gulf between the good jobs and the bad jobs is huge, and the town has deteriorated. And I think the civic pride, it definitely took a tumble. How does it compare, like, working here to working in Romania? Why did you come here to work there, I suppose? The salary is better than Romania, that's why... But the conditions in the last time, it's like slavery. Modern slavery, I call it. I'm delighted to be joined this week by the presenter of that documentary, James Bloodworth. James is a regular contributor to Unheard and is also the author of a really uh, profoundly important new book called Hired, where James went undercover um, and did a lot of low-paid jobs and really got under the skin of something that we all like to talk about but none of us have actually got the real lived experience. James has done that and we're going to hear more from James in just a second and I'm also delighted to be joined by Polly McKenzie who is director of the think tank Demos and a former special advisor to Nick Clegg. Welcome to you both. Hi, thanks for having uh, us on. Nice to see you. Very nice to see you. Right James, just start with you, can you give us a little kind of summary of what you were trying to achieve in your documentary sure so when i when i wrote my book in 2016 i went to a town called rugely in the west midlands it was a former collier town uh, which the, the the coal mine had closed in 1991 and 20 years later an amazon warehouse had arrived so the biggest employer when i went there was 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 amazon and and there was a real contrast with the kind of work i was doing at amazon um with the kind of I find that quite demeaning work. It was it, there was a lack of dignity to it. There was a lack of respect. Um, you weren't treated with much respect by your employer, um, and there was a, there was a, a quite striking contrast between that and the kind of pride that many of the older residents of, of the town drew from some of the old industries which were in the town. So, so with the with the audio documentary, it seemed like it would be fitting to explore that in more depth to to contrast the kind of what the kind of jobs of today, the the low-paid, precarious jobs, had done to a small town like Rugeley and many other towns across the UK, and contrast that with the, some of the kind of the sense of dignity and self-respect that many people derived from some of the old jobs, many of which weren't, weren't necessarily the most pleasant jobs in the world, but there was a strong sense of identity um, attached to that to their work. Because this is a topic that is very much in vogue at the moment, talking about, and, and rightly so because it's a very important issue, how the nature of work is changing, but also how the jobs of today compared with the jobs of yesterday. We have quite a lot of nostalgia about those big heavy industry jobs. But what did you find from Rugeley when you spoke to people? Were there conclusions that yesteryear was better than what they had today? 
Well, I mean, there was nostalgia um, to start with, but I think there's, there are there are different types of nostalgia. So I th- think there's 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 a, a type of nostalgia which is purely sentimental, which is simply looking back and casting the past as, as some kind of golden era when contrasted with the present. Um, this typically would, um, you know, romanticizes what it's like to work in a coal mine, for example. Um, and, and I mean, I didn't want to go down that road because I think that I, I think that's kind of a dead end. But at the same time, there, there's, a, there's a nostalgia in towns like Rugeley for some of the institutional affiliations which sprung up around the industrial jobs. So the se- trade unions would be a good example, social clubs, the sense of solidarity, the sense of, of workers self-organising. Um, and that's, I think, that kind of nostalgia. I mean, I do think it's, I, I do think, I regret that that, that that kind of solidarity has passed and we live in a much more individual society now. I don't think that's necessarily nostalgia. I think that's, that's, that's a, a justified sense of regret f- for the passing of something that benefited many, many people. And, I mean, I, in a former life, did a lot of work at the Department of Trade and Industry, actually looking at miners' compensation. So it wasn't all great down the, the coal mines. I remember a lot of these men got horrific dust-related diseases, emphysema, um, something called vibration white finger. There was lots of things. But I remember going around a lot of these former mining communities and that what you've just described came out quite strongly. People said that when the mines shut and the pits shut, um, a lot of the families felt that they had lost their sense of community and a lot of the, the men in the family, you know, they were men. They were they had a sense of kind of masculine pride about going to work as well. And um, and the, the working day didn't just stop when you came up out the mine shaft. You went to the pub afterwards. There was a lot of socialisation around it as well. Do you think that's gone completely or do you think, you know, new industries can can recreate that? I think you can you can absolutely recreate that kind of I would call it a socialist culture without necessarily harking back to reopening coal mines or anything like that because I mean working under a coal mine there were there were hundreds of people died in the in the coal mines around Rugeley and and the local area those coal mines that you know every so often there would be an accident where someone would die or they'd lose lose a limb um so absolutely you know we we don't want to go back to that but some of the the, the kind of grassroots democratic organizations for the working class organized by the working class um I think I think those things are, are a big loss I mean especially in other places in the country like South Wales where a culture has effectively been destroyed and then you have um, there aren't those outlets for democratic expression there aren't those kind of uh, outlets through which a working class person can act on the world and they're not just acted on um, by either big corporations by some of the huge economic changes by globalization there's a sense that I mean the socialist movement gave people a way to explain the world but also then a way to to kind of try to emancipate yourself and actually a, pro- a channel through which you could you could express your discontent. Um, Polly, uh, you, you've written for us uh, on the Unheard website and your article is called Work How- Warehouse Work Needn't Be Worthless. Now, James and his book went undercover at an Amazon warehouse and did not exactly give it a glowing uh, report. What's your view on all of this? Do you think James is harking back to a time of nostalgia? Are these sort of Amazon jobs, are they just where we are now? Is that just part of evolution, industrial evolution? Well, it's funny, isn't it? You characterise them as these warehouse jobs in a quite kind of derogatory tone. I think You should read his book. (laughs) But there's a whole... I have read his book, and there's a whole set of characteristics of of the employment in an Amazon warehouse, and it's not just them, right? There's loads of companies that are basically the bottom sort of 
10 to 20% of our labour market, which is full of these kinds of conditions. I guess what I want us to notice is it's not the nature of the work itself that is problematic here, because as we've heard, working in a coal mine was brutal, brutally difficult, incredibly dangerous, both in a kind of high risk, you might lose a limb and the kind of breathing in dust systematically. And, and a warehouse actually putting stuff in boxes doesn't have any of those characteristics. What, what you need to do is completely change both the terms and conditions and most importantly, the culture and identity that is built around uh, those warehouse jobs and the place of that uh, piece of industry because it still is industry, in the community. And, and that's what's not happening from employers at the moment. I, I think that nostalgia is, is driven by a real longing for a sense of purpose, pride and identity that people have. And, and I think we absolutely must listen to that kind of grassroots call that we hear from people. But what we mustn't allow that is to either kind of veer into fatalism about, oh, all we've got left is kind of rubbish, unmanly jobs that don't have any meaning or purpose. You know, there's no more meaning to bashing coal off a rock than there is to putting stuff in a box. Um, but it also shouldn't, it, I think for lots of commentators, it gets sucked into a, therefore we have to kind of support a sort of white ethnic nationalism mm. and say, no more immigrants, everyone just go away, stop the world, I want to get off. Actually, I think those community infrastructure kind of uh, facilities, um, events uh, and organising can actually help us to build inclusive communities that are much more diverse than they might have been. We can, we, we can get back what we had in the past that was that purpose and identity without having to make it sort of just of the 50s and where, where everybody looks the same. But this question of pride that people have are we chasing unicorns in the sense that actually isn't the reality that that most people don't have jobs that they're leaping out of bed in the morning (laughs) to go to thinking yes I feel so intensely proud about my job you know are we maybe sort of being out of touch with what working life is generally like James I mean what what can be done I mean how can we all have brilliant jobs that we all absolutely love or is that just unrealistic? I mean, I, I don't think it, it is a question of having... There are always going to be jobs which, which aren't necessarily the most most fun jobs to do. I think it's. I think you, you derive pride from work often if there's some kind of sense of participation in either decision-making or in, in the kind of rewards you're getting. So the Amazon warehouse, for example, there was a sense that you couldn't... There were rules that were laid down that you couldn't not break. So, I mean, if you went to the, if you went to the bathroom to, to take a toilet break and you, you spent more than five minutes in there, you were typically... Uh, be discipline, receive a disciplinary for missing productivity targets. If you took a day off sick, uh, you would receive a disciplinary for that. I mean, that doesn't create an atmosphere where you feel like you're participating in something bigger. Um, and in contrast, I used to be a postman for for three years, and and that was an environment where you had a strong trade union, where you had a sense that you were actually contributing to something bigger than yourself, and you felt like you got something back in return. And it wasn't the most fun job. I mean, delivering letters isn't isn't something that sorting letters and delivering them isn't fun, but you feel like you're you're contributing and you feel like you're getting something back in return, and you're progressing year upon year. Whereas some of the new jobs, you have none of that. And I think what's interesting about that, I mean, I I actually was a delivered post at the Ministry of Agriculture. It was my very, very first job. So I was working with the kind of government post room people. And yeah, the job was 
let's be honest, quite boring. But the thing that made it really interesting and fun was the socialisation aspect of it. The fact that you were working with a team, you got breaks, you could um, get to know everybody, you could go to the pub afterwards. There was that sense of uh, community. And from what you're saying, and you're, I mean, one of the things that really jumped out at me from your documentary is that, that you said you found a bottle of urine and people were so scared about having the basic human right of going to the toilet that they were having to urinate in a bottle. I mean, something has very much gone wrong with our labour market, Polly, that we have situations like this. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, but but there can be ways actually to motivate people in ways that are sort of quite competitive that might be driven by performance targets that are, that are fun, actually. My own experience in a factory is pretty limited but um, as a teenager I worked uh, packing chocolates I'm sure this job has long since been automated but putting small chocolate balls inside either a plastic rabbit or a plastic Santa depending on the season and I worked with mostly kind of middle-aged women who have sort of uncertain girth and an enormous kind of merriment and joy and they loved the fact that they were so much faster than us kind of summer girls they loved the, they had a sense of pride in a completely trivial and meaningless job really um because because they were good at it and and they enjoyed being being the best they enjoyed kind of helping helping the young ones and then they enjoyed yeah that sense of kind of community and 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 the flexibility that the job had so I I think I think employers should actually be a bit more um ambitious about the kind of retention you can get because you know these women worked in this chocolate factory for you know 15 20 years with Absolutely no progression, actually, because it suited their lifestyle. It paid the bills, and it was a fun place. Yeah, to and be. they liked going to their they liked going to their work. And I think that's such a big thing that a lot of these, um, you know, huge Uber employers. I use the word Uber, no pun intended, obviously, <laughs> um, because actually, if you if you treat your staff like decent human beings, the word dehumanized is used quite a lot in your book and also in in your documentary productivity is higher you know as you say retention and loyalty is higher your your performance is better but James why don't companies get this is there always a race to the bottom if companies can get away with it and how do you make this better how do you try and try and turn this race to the bottom around well with a company like Amazon there's very much an ideology behind some of this uh, behavior so i mean the 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 model in the typical amazon warehouse is is almost a throwback to a taylorist the theories of frederick taylor so scientific management so it's almost like managerial leninism so everything is geared towards productivity and your and efficiency yeah and your human needs besides that uh, are not really taken into consideration so anything whatsoever which brings down might bring down productivity um, so I mean, like going to the toilet. Yeah. So I mean, my first day in in the job, I was told that you know we were all told on our induction that if we're ill, we'll have to self medicate because we need you here to wow. hitting your productivity targets. Um, and so I think p- politicians over over recent decades have created an environment where that kind of thing is unshackled, where 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 the companies can do that. Um, so I mean, not all companies will do that. Of course, you you still have good decent companies around. I mean, I worked for Admiral. Um, while I was writing the book. And what, what, just explain what that company is. So the car insurance yeah. company, Admiral, they treated their staff quite well. It was, I mean, the money wasn't great, but other than that, they actually made it a kind of environment where they wanted people to stick around because they realised that realised that benef- benefited everyone uh, in the long term. But, but politically, you have to 
put put rules and put laws in place so that companies can't treat their workers like that. Interestingly, Admiral's privately owned company. Uh, the owners of it are themselves in Wales quite substantial philanthropists now, and that's quite different from uh, a system of a, a massive kind of global uh, company driven by. Um, the requirement on company directors to follow their fiduciary duty and get to, to their shareholders to their shareholders and get the most return on capital instead of trying to be you know kind of positive contributors to our society uh, you know actually at the very highest level we need to think about how we authorize companies to spend money on our behalf which is what they're doing right they are they are acting because we through our pensions own these companies in vast quantities like what are they what are they doing on our behalf they're not doing what i think you or i might want them to do and, and taking responsible long term decisions and what's the what are some of the practical things on this is it um better employment legislation more trade unions better enforcement of the existing uh, legislation that we have what, what are your thoughts on that well i mean agent? enforcement would be the obvious like first step because you have you have laws around uh, the minimum wage for example which when i was working at amazon weren't being enforced so the transline the agency i worked was employed for at amazon paid one young lady i interviewed paid her 42 pence an hour wow. and it took her 6 weeks to get the money back and they threatened to write it off after 3 months if she hadn't got it back by then um, and just on that as well, am i right now understanding James the number of prosecutions for flouting the minimum wage is very very small yes it is and I mean even something as simple as when you get your payslip printing what the minimum wage actually is on your payslip so it's very it makes it easy that, I mean that that's kind of something that sort of that probably pays for itself doing things like that um, really basic um, step that you could take first of all and then then bro- more broad broadly I mean, making it easier for trade unions to to get into these places. The GMB leaflet in the Amazon car, the GMB trade union leaflet in the Amazon car park, and they're chased away by security guards um, simply for giving out leaflets telling workers what their rights are. Um, migration makes it makes the workforce more transitory in some of these places. So um, there are people who who then would use that to kind of bash migrants. I, I don't believe we should go down that route. I think we should bring the threshold down to actually set up a union in the workplace because if we recognise that the workforce is more transitory, that people aren't staying so long, I think it should be lower than 10% um, people want to join a union to actually set a union up in a workplace. And also I think if you are um, a migrant worker with let's say limited English, just being able to know how to set up a trade union or access a trade union is very difficult. I was Mm -hmm. um, involved with a union called the Independent Workers of Great Britain, the IWGB, and they're campaigning at the University of London to try and get some of the catering, cleaning and security jobs back in-house. They've been outsourced and the pay and the conditions and just how the workers are treated is very, very poor. But what's interesting is they've, they've helped these largely migrant women workers that can't really speak English they've helped them organize themselves and actually that has been it's been well who knows if it will be successful it depends on how this dispute goes with the University of London but it's certainly been quite empowering for the workers to sort of feel look okay they've at least got a chance of trying to get their voice heard in some ways but Polly the other thing I want to ask you about aren't we to blame as well as the consumer Um, James spoke to uh, somebody from the um, IEA who said, look, at the end of the day, if this comes down to a choice between better rights for workers and a better deal for the consumer, I'm going to go for the consumer. Um, But of course, we're all consumers 
as well as workers. And so it, it's not quite that simple. I mean, the market absolutely works and it should work to use competition to drive uh, prices down, um, which which does benefit us all. Right. So um, if if there weren't any supermarkets, the workers that James talked to in his um in his documentary and in his book would be even worse off, right? So you you do need to have a competitive market. But there is a role for regulation to prevent um, basically the exploitation of, you know, monopsony power in these large employers who are the only place you can turn to. And that power is just as exploiting as monopoly power, which affects consumers. So I, I just think there is a really important role for the state to play to set a framework which allows... Uh, allows the market to operate without reaching into a kind of race to the bottom. A really good example, actually, is the post office, which, well, the, the Royal Mail, which James mentioned, who are being massively outcompeted by delivery companies who basically use disguised employment. They use self-employed contractors. Um, and because they use self-employed contractors whose effective minimum wage, whose effective wage is far less than the minimum wage, the the Royal Mail who pay their posties the minimum wage with you know various things, radical things like holiday pay and sick pay, can't compete. And we know that they are really up against it, even though they've still got the you know a big monopoly to operate. Uh, the government has to intervene to to protect those yeah. things. And James, what's your advice to our unheard listeners who must be thinking, well? How do, if I want to do the right thing as a consumer, what do I do? Are you saying to people, don't use Amazon, don't use Uber? What, what's the answer? Should we be withdrawing our, our custom from these places or should we be lobbying the government to do what Polly said, which was intervene you know, in a more structural level? Well, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's a bit of a drop in the ocean to think that this can be solved with simply boycotts of, of, of different companies. But at the same time, I think if you can afford to shop eth- ethically, I think you should. And I also think that we, we've come to kind of um, the point, the previous point about this kind of di- dichotomy between it's either cheap goods or workers' rights. We've come to ex- believe that we're entitled to very, very cheap goods um, without actually having to look worry about the rest of the supply chain, where these things are coming from. Technology makes that facilitates that to some extent. So you just look at your computer screen, you order on Amazon, and you don't necessarily have to worry about what's what else is going on in the supply chain. I think that's a, a false dichotomy. I think it's it's not just there's not just a moral question of do you really want um, your your goods coming your consumer goods coming to you from warehouses where people are having to urinate in bottles. But I mean, as as Polly said, we're all we're also all workers, and these these terms and conditions they spread. And if we don't nip some of this stuff in the bud now, then it's 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 not just going to be the person you know driving the Uber cab or or working in the Amazon warehouse. It's going to be our, all of our jobs as well. You say that we're all workers. We might not all be workers in the future because the other thing that I thought was fascinating about your documentary was um, the interview you did with John Crudders, who talked about a new idea coming from the, the, the left, which is a sort of post-work utopia, what is known as fully automated luxury communism. I didn't really know what that meant, but I thought, oh, that sounds quite nice. Designer goods, that sounds good. And we're just actually going to hear a clip of that from, from John Crudders now. There is another conversation on the left, my part of the pitch, if you want, which, which celebrates the end of work, right? Which imagines there's a post-work nirvana, which serves to reinforce that sense of us being unable to comprehend and speak to the lives that people actually live rather than this imagined futurology of some post-work universal basic income funded nirvana, which seems to me to be a total no-go. Sounds more like Arthur C. Clarke than it does Karl Marx, you know what I mean? 
So James, just explain a bit to us, what, what does all this mean? Are we going to have a point where we can just all sit back, get a universal basic income and do no work? Well, it's kind of a, a bit of a juvenile fantasy, I think. Um, this idea that all the jobs, all the all the bad jobs are going to be automated. No one's going to have to do any work anymore and the state's simply going to, to pay us. I mean, there will always be jobs that, I think there, there will always be worked to some degree. I don't think you can automate, even, I mean, self-driving cars, for example. I think it, what, what will actually happen in practice, it will be much more like the system of an autopilot on a plane where you have a driver who's just doing mu- simply doing much less than they're doing now. I don't think... Um, I, I don't think the idea that machines will somehow put everyone out of work, this this idea has been, been around for, for over 100 years now. I don't think it's it's realistic. And I also think this this obsession with uh, on parts of the left with full automation, it's, 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 a, it's a way of uh, being conservative and, and sounding radical. So you're project so nothing can really change until the revolution. So you don't actually have to bother doing the difficult, boring stuff in the Amazon warehouses, unionizing those people. You simply project all your fantasies onto this, this far off point in the future where machines do all the difficult labor. And I mean, to me, I mean, that just sounds, I mean, it sounds sort of bonkers, but also to me, I think there's a moral question because I think work is good for you. You know, I think work is very important to your mental health to give you a sense of purpose. That word pride that we started this um, discussion with. And Polly, when you were an advisor in government, you know, any government worth its salt has an ambition for full employment. Why? Uh, Actually, um, George Osborne adopted a strategy for full employment, which was sort of quite radical and exciting for a Conservative government to notice that that's a good thing instead of thinking that a bit of structural unemployment is quite good to keep wages down. Um, But absolutely. And, you know, I I ran a mental health charity for a couple of years and there's lots of really substantial evidence that work activity and, as we were talking about, purpose and belonging are really, really important when it comes to people's mental well-being and sense of of what, what life is for. Um, I think work is inevitably going to change quite substantially. Uh, but but we will find new things to pay other people to do. Um, if, if the current jobs are automated, then over time we will just find new activities for people to do. I think, I think the challenge is coping with that, those big transitions, actually thinking about how we develop a kind of a culture of learning because the people who... Uh, are most likely to suffer in that transition from one set of jobs to another are the people who probably had the least successful interactions with the education system in, in their teenage and kind of early years, um, which means that that idea that you have to kind of take a few years out, maybe retrain, reskill, might be really challenging. And what we can't do anymore is just say, we'll just leave a few places and a few people behind. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's a sustainable approach to capitalism anymore. And I think in a way... The idea of people not having one job for life anymore, that's already really coming to an end, but also one skill for life as well. Part of it is going to be having um, a psychology, both as individuals, but as a state as well and as employers, that you will probably go through many iterations of your profession or your career or how you earn your money. And, you know, we need people to work for longer for example, now, you know, we need men and women to work for much longer than they had to. And part of that is going to be an environment which is a place like your women you worked with in your factory. Actually, people want to come into the workplace and they can feel that they will get trained and that they will get the skills that they need so that they can adjust as the workplace and technology and society moves on. 
I suppose the question is, you know, is this something that you think, do you think policymakers and politicians get it, James? Do you think they'll have the courage to try and take this stuff on? I mean, I don't think they do. I mean, that was one of the motivations for writing the book in that I don't I think work does have value. I think I, I don't also one of the reasons I object to the fully automated like fantasies around this this workless feature is I do think productive activity can be very good for you. I mean, I enjoy my work. Um, I, I enjoy working. I enjoy feeling like I'm making progress. Um, and I think if the key then is to make sure that work isn't something that just immiserates people. And I think when we allow companies uh, like Amazon, like Sports Direct, to have completely free reign over their workforce, it does become something immiserating, and we go in the opposite direction. So, I mean, humanising work, making it something where um, you have some kind of there is a sense of, of kind of democratic, more democratic engagement at work. There's a sense that you're being rewarded for, for the effort you put in. I mean, I don't think work has to be something that's, that's, that's bad, but, but that's where the work should take place. And I don't think politicians are paying enough attention to that. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much um, for, for talking about the, the documentary. It, it's called How Dead End Jobs Killed Small Town Pride. And you can listen to it on Unheard. Uh, James's book, Hired is also available from many outlets, including Amazon. Unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, we're breaking down the system just bit by bit, but it's a start. This documentary is a start. That's good. Okay, right. So we're now going to move on to uh, my favourite section of the the show, which is our Heroes and Villains of the Week. Um, We're going to start, I think, there's only one story in town uh, across the world that could be our Heroes of the Week, and that's people involved in the, the Thai rescue incredible story um i sort of thought we were not going to have a happy ending i thought it was going to end in in tears we did one diver did die but i thought it was you know a story which in 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 a world of just relentless misery in a in a time where our news cycle is just driven by people who are either trying to take lumps out of each other or do things for entire personal gain here was an amazing story of people just coming together from all different countries to sort of try and help these boys and and just such massive uh, bravery polly what what are your thoughts it, it's just heroism wherever you look really there's um the coach who managed to keep these boys calm, quiet and alive in the pitch dark. You know, the first pictures that we saw were were of those the British divers who found them, you know, shining a light. That would have been the first time they saw any kind of light in nine days. Can you imagine the horror of that? Not knowing they had no idea what time of day it was. Um, then there's the Australian doctor who stayed with them, kind of got them healthy enough to be able to manage this extraordinary underwater dive. Three hours of diving for these completely inexperienced boys, um, guided by this rope again in the complete murky darkness. And and also the endless numbers of people from people trying to pump the water, um, engineers scientists doctors and and the and the extraordinary number of people sort of around just as supporters and the way the family comported themselves it's just extraordinary and thank goodness they're all safe and and our absolute kind of heartfelt thoughts are with the family of of that brave thai navy seal who who unfortunately lost his life to save these boys oh absolutely and the other thing i thought was amazing was just the amount of um even when the boys were still in the cave and we didn't know how it was going to go, the, the families issued a statement saying, you know, whatever happens, we just thank the coach and we're not blame casting. And, you know, here we... I just feel that 
our, our media and our kind of posturing on things are so relentlessly negative the whole time. It was quite amazing to see this terrible disaster, but it was kind of love bombed by everybody and just had this great result. Right, now we're on to the villain of the week. Um, this is our former Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson. I mean, it's been an absolutely tumultuous week in British politics. Um, David Davis resigned on the Sunday, but I have to say I was very, very surprised by Boris Johnson going. Um, James, your thoughts? I mean, Boris Johnson, it, I'm surprised Theresa May didn't get rid of him earlier. I mean, it, the week hasn't <coughs> been as bad for her as I expected it to be. I mean, she's still in a... She's lost David Davis, but she's still in a relatively secure position, it seems to be, from from my point of view. But the most humiliating thing was the fact that Boris got to go on his own, own terms. Um, I, th- I feel like she should have got rid of him much earlier. He's one of those people who... Is kind of always kind of there, um, always seems to be seems to be you know kind of around the halls of power. But he's so gaff prone, he's so such an opportunist. Um, I, I find it really disappointing that he gets to go on his own terms. Frankly, I see. I felt he almost didn't get to go in his own terms because I think David Davis going first slightly stole a bit of his thunder. I think David Davis going made him think. Well, if I want a shot at the title down the track, I better distance myself from this. Um, Brexit deal. But I think the thing that is very disappointing is Boris was, I, I was speaking to a photographer friend of mine who's very, very experienced, has been around, you know, all the, the great leaders of our sort of recent living um, history. And he said he had never seen scenes like he did when he followed Boris Johnson around the EU referendum campaign. And then there was absolutely no doubt that Boris had swung it for the Leave campaign. And for him to sort of, you know, whatever, whether you're a Remainer or a Lever, but to just think, hang on, this isn't making me look good anymore. I'm off. You know, it's the absolute kind of antithesis of teamwork and collective um, responsibility. Uh, Polly, quickly, your your thoughts on this. That photograph of him signing his resignation letter was (laughs) the most extraordinary move, which just demonstrates that the resignation was all about Boris and nothing to do with Brexit. At a time when a British citizen had just died from Novichok. Yeah, and he he missed Cobra, right? He missed an important national security meeting to chat about having a coffee with his advisors and pose signing a resignation letter. I mean... I think, actually, even though I would have loved Theresa May to sack him about nine times in the last year, actually she gave him enough rope to hang himself with because he really looked like such a craven, self-serving idiot in the last couple of days that, thank goodness, there's now, I think, no chance of him ever being the leader or the Prime Minister. Well, you say that, but never, say never in these crazy political times (laughs) that we live in. Listen, thank you so much um, to both my guests, uh, Polly McKenzie from Demos and James Bloodworth, uh, who is a regular contributor to Unheard and has um, written a book, Hired. And of course, just one last time, you can listen to James's uh, documentary, How Dead End Jobs Killed Small Town Pride on Unheard. You've been listening to the weekly Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. I'll see you again next week.